please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So then, my brothers and sisters, be glad in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to repeat the same things to you because they will help keep you on track. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the people who do evil things. Watch out for those who insist on circumcision, which is really mutilation. We are the circumcision. We are the ones who serve by God's spirit and who boast in Christ Jesus. We don't put our confidence in the rituals performed on the body, though I have good reason to have this kind of confidence. If anyone else has reason to put their confidence in physical advantages, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. With respect to re observing the law, I am a Pharisee. With respect to devotion to the faith, I harass the church. With respect to the righteousness under the law, I am blameless. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have lost everything for him. But what I lost, I think of as sewer trash, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In Christ, I have a righteousness that is not my own, and that does not come from the law, but rather the faithfulness of Christ. It is the righteousness of God that is based upon faith. The righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, and participation in his sufferings. It includes being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. There was once an up-and-coming songwriter. He and his partner had had some pretty good gigs when he got a contract to do a movie. Now, Eventually, this contract would mean that he'd win an Academy Award for the song, um, the trolley, here comes the trolley, clang, 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 with the trolley. I'll remember the name of it eventually. Some of you know this song, but a lot of you are like, what? Because while he won an award for that song, that is not the song we remember from the movie, Meet Me in St. Louis. The song most of us remember is Judy Garland singing, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. When Hugh Martin first penned the words to that song, it was a, a little different. In fact, it was a song that almost didn't happen. Um, he'd been playing around with the melody for a little bit and couldn't quite get it to resolve, and so he'd thrown it away. And his writing partner came back and said, what was that you were playing yesterday? I, I really think you should work on that. It's like, I, I don't know, it's kind of, it's not quite there yet. He, 
he kept working on it, he kept working on it, and finally he got it to a place where he felt like he had penned the perfect song for this moment in the movie. He, he knew that this was exactly what it needed, and it goes a little bit like this. Have yourself a merry little Christmas It may be your last Next year we may all be living in the past <laughs> he wrote. And in fact, when he, he went and he played this song for the stars, Judy Garland quite famously looked at him and said, if I sing that to little Margaret, they're going to think I'm a monster. <laughs> and he told her, tough. This is the song. If you want the song, these are the lyrics that go with it. He's told this story many, many times since, and he often uh, closes it with, I was pretty young and arrogant. He thought he knew what was best, and pride almost got in the way of one of our most memorable songs. All this Lent, uh, we've been talking about the things that we need to leave behind, right? The things we have to let go of if we're going to move forward in our relationship with Christ. The first week, Pastor Peter talked a little bit about moving out of our comfort zones and how to let go of the things that make us feel secure. Last week, we started a little bit talking about this thing, pride. We, we talked about what happens when we have a need to be right. And we decided that pride is one of the things that builds that up in us and can really damage our relationships. Paul starts an argument in chapter 2 that he continues today in chapter 3, talking about pride. Last chapter, he was really talking about how do you deal with one another in the midst of a conflict. But in this chapter, he moves to speaking more directly about what that conflict is. In chapter 2, he was talking about the humility of Christ. He sets out this beautiful hymn, this example of how Christ humbled himself, and how we can take on that example. But as he moves into chapter 3, he wants to talk not just about how we deal with one another in the midst of conflict, but actually how to address the specific conflict plaguing the Philippian church. This is a church, as we said, that he knew well, a church he probably helped to found and that had supported him when he was there, and Philippi has supported his work since. But other people have come, and, and early on, he said, have preached a different gospel. And as we listen to the words in chapter 3, we start to get a hint about what that gospel was. Today, scholars call this 
the Judaizers gospel. It's those who came and said that if you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow Christ, you have to first convert to Judaism, which included circumcision. And Paul, you know, this has not been the gospel that he's preached. His has been about grace. He's been the apostle to the Gentile. And so first he says, look, we disagree about this, and, and we're going to deal with one another in the midst of our disagreement in humility. But as he gets to chapter 3, he's still going to try and put down the disagreement. And so I think it's interesting that in 2, he gave us a beautiful hymn about Christ, but in 3, he gives us his resume. Right? Paul says, here's who I am. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am a people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. With respect to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Essentially, he wants to meet his opponents on their own terms and say, oh, you think you know Judaism? Let me tell you, I invented Judaism. Right? He wants, he wants to prove for a moment that he is that kid that has like the all-star five-point resume. Right? He would go to the top of any Pharisee interview pile. He says, you think you're cool, I promise you I'm cooler, and none of it matters. None of it matters. Paul knows that he is speaking to a church that will honor these great marks of the Jewish community. He knows that when he sets out these kinds of credentials that those are things that would often command respect and honor in his audience. And then he says none of them matter. See, in the ancient world, it was all about the respect and honor you could command. Your accomplishments earned you a place in the world. That's so different than it is today. No? Okay, all right, a few of you are with me, good. Okay, <laughs> it's, really, it's really not at all different. Because today, how many of us um, you know, like to walk around on our business cards with letters after our name? Reverend Catherine Walker, MDiv. Yes, oh, okay, a few, right? How many of you, when you, you get the new promotion just can't wait to tell people, or, or you were so proud of the 4.0 GPA. I can still tell you my GPA from high school. I won't, because it's embarrassing that I still know it, but I could. <laughs> right? We, we all have these, these accomplishments. How many of you have trophies somewhere in the attic from the fifth grade Little League, right? Or the college athletic pictures? Or the letterman jacket from high school? Yeah. How many of you can recount stories of the glory days? We do still live in the kind of culture where your achievements often equal esteem in other people's lives. So much so that we've begun to kind of wear our accomplishments like badges of honor. But it's a funny thing about accomplishments. You're only as good as the next one, aren't you? 
I had occasion to preach in front of a group of preachers and um, I did reasonably okay and they were all shaking my hand to tell me how great it was and it, I got to ride that high for about three hours and then I got in my car to drive back and realized I had to preach again on Sunday. And I was only gonna be as good as the next sermon or the next one. You're really cool if you're valedictorian in high school until about the day after graduation, right? And then it's a whole new playing field. I can't tell you, I grew up at a school where sports were really important. We played state championships and everything. I can't tell you how many guys I know who were on state championship basketball team, football team, baseball team, and they hit college and realized it was a whole other world. And then some of them hit the pros and realized, whole buddy was in a whole other world. The funny thing is that when our identity becomes grounded in our accomplishments, there is this never-ending cycle of competition because you're only as good as the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And we end up in this cycle of pride that isn't so much about confidence, but it's about covering our own insecurities and looking for a place to ground our identity. We end up not just being happy about the things that we've done, but we need that affirmation to tell us who we are and to hide the things that we don't want anyone to see. This has become a phenomenon in our culture. There are actually researchers who are digging into what this is doing. And do you know that one of the fastest rising conditions that people end up in therapy for is a thing called imposter syndrome? These are people who often are at the master's degree or higher, who are at the top of their field, who will make more money than I will ever see in a year. Um, and they are plagued by the idea that one day someone will figure out that they are not as smart or as competent or as good as people thought they were and they will lose it all. All of their accomplishments have not made them secure. They have instead bred in them this deep sense that it is all gonna go away if they don't keep achieving again and again and again. This is far beyond a healthy drive to better ourselves and into a place where our identity is so misplaced that we can never know joy, never know peace, and begins to poison the relationships in our lives. This is when pride has become not just the shield that we carry, but our whole sense of self. And it's dangerous, not just for us, but for the people around us. See, because when we're caught in this cycle of pride, it becomes all about us. So much so that what other people accomplish is actually a threat, right? There was a, a study done a few years ago now amongst Halo players. Okay, so for those of you who don't play video games, Halo is one of these games where you play with other people, right? There's a lot of shooting and blowing things up. 
If you don't know, go find a teenage boy. They'll tell you all about it, I promise. But they, they, because this is a cooperative game, it's a game people play over the internet, there are competitions. And so they did a survey, because Halo is a, an online environment, and it's one where particularly women often are harassed, and sometimes younger players are harassed. And so the researchers wanted to kind of figure out what feeds into some of these toxic relationships. And what they found out was truly elite players, people who are really good, who, who are good enough to actually make money playing this game, they don't have a problem playing with women, and they don't have a problem playing with noobs. They will happily put people on their team who have never played the game before. Because they know who they are, and they know what they know, and they actually have fun introducing new people to the game. Harassment comes from players who are at a kind of middle, mediocre level. People who feel they have something to prove. Who can only feel good about themselves by putting down somebody they deem to be less than. Think about that for a moment. People who are actually good, who are truly good, rejoice in helping others along. But people who are kind of skating in the middle, in a place of insecurity, end up doing damage to others to make themselves feel better. That's the difference between a realistic sense of confidence and a false sense of pride. People who know their own abilities, who know what they know and what they don't know, are happy to reach back and help those along. But if we're only driven by our next accomplishment, by how good we are, by how well we compete, by how many people we're better than, there is no incentive to look out for anyone else. We are forced into this sense of an unending competition. Paul sets out a resume that is essentially a smackdown for any Judaizer who wants to claim that their gospel is better than his, because he can. But he's really quick to remind them that as cool as those accomplishments are, none of them matter. What matters is your identity in Christ. He wants to say, all that I've accomplished is great, but my sense of self, who I am, all that is good about me comes not from what I've done, but from who Christ is from Christ's righteousness that is alive in me. And Paul is so secure in that identity that he can look at people that he disagrees with and say, you know what, it's okay, so long as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. It's okay that we agree so long as we have that argument in humility in the attitude that Christ taught us. It's okay that we aren't on the 100% same page. We don't have to have a false sense of unity if we are unified in our identity in Christ. He can even get to a place where he says that he is grateful for the argument because through it people are hearing the gospel of Christ. Imagine that. To disagree with someone and be so secure in who we are as Christians, that you can be grateful for the argument. 
In many ways, this is the antidote that Philippians puts forth for pride. Rather than our identity being grounded in one accomplishment after another after another, it says the antidote is to be grounded in gratitude and to know who we are in Christ Jesus. To know what it is to be loved by God at such a deep level that nothing that we've done or haven't done could ever change that relationship to be so sure of God's grace that you don't have to know all the answers, but can instead stand and say, thank you, God, for what I have. Thank you, God, for what you've done in me. Thank you, God, for those in the community that I get along with and those I don't. Thank you for the way that you are using all of us to proclaim your gospel. That is a deep and profound sense of gratitude. And I think it really is one that is needed in this day and age. <clears throat> You've heard Peter quote a number of times the studies about how our culture is becoming increasingly polarized. We all think we're right, and I truly believe that we are seeking good answers. But when we're so proud of our own accomplishments, so concerned with insisting on our own way, we miss what it is to say thank you for the people who oppose us, who challenge us, who want to make the world better, just as we do. We miss an opportunity to just be grateful for the identity of Christ that we all share. Ultimately, it is gratitude and humility that we have to thank for have yourself a merry little Christmas. See, it took Hugh Martin quite a few days to come around. In fact, it took his friend, Tom Drake, who was a, an actor in the movie, to sit him down for a cup of coffee and say, Hugh, you're being an idiot. Judy's right. You have a great song but not the way it's written. And if you would just listen to her, it could be really amazing. And so he finally went back to the piano. And if you read through the original lyrics and the new lyrics, you can see that the changes he made weren't that big. But it took that song from something that would have been this melancholy, downer kind of moment to the wistful, hopeful Christmas song that has transcended generations, that is now sung by people who've never seen the movie or know that the song even came from a movie, has been recorded by artists again and again and again. Because he took a moment to be humble, to be grateful for those who offered critique. This is my prayer for us as a church. And I challenge you this week, when you find yourself in conflict and you are tempted to reach for pride, for your accomplishments, for all the reasons why you might be right, take a moment and instead reach for gratitude. What are you thankful for, especially in the other person? 
and see if it doesn't change your perspective to something more grounded in Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.